Welcome to The Man Who Was Scared to Death, a brand new audio documentary from the master of mortality, Mr. Philip Oven. A man who has thought about not existing every day since the age of 12 and has even seen an existential therapist to come to terms with dying. In these recordings, we speak to people who deal with death as part of their daily jobs to see if their views of existence have changed over the years as they try to help Philip come to terms with his own. Today, we talk to Carol Henderson, a grief recovery educator and heart healer. Please note, these recordings took place before COVID, if you can imagine such a time. I'm a grief recovery specialist. In other words, I'm a teacher. I teach people actually how to stop asking the questions because there are no answers. So often what keeps us awake at night when we're grieving, when something really bad has happened and we don't know the way forward, what keeps us awake is what if, if only, would have, should have, could have, why, why the biggie. And that keeps us on this little hamster wheel of pain. And so what I do is using this little set of tools I discovered quite by accident, thank heavens for Amazon book reviews. Mm-hmm. I found this well, book thanks, by thank accident. Thank Amazon generally. Oh, well, yes, um, absolutely. But um, I found this book review. I was looking for books to help me. Mm-hmm. And there was this book that said, this book's okay, but it's not as good as the Grief Recovery Handbook. Uh, when you say help you, uh, help you, why were you looking for books at that time? Um, because I had just been widowed. Okay. My husband of 20 years, Kevin, had died. He died from cancer. Mm-hmm. He was 41 years old. And to make that even more difficult, if that's possible, he died of the most curable form of cancer there is, malignant melanoma. Now, the thing with skin cancer is that if you catch it early, it's treatable. If you don't catch it early, it isn't. There's nothing they can do. All they can do is cut it out and hope that it hasn't spread. And and sadly for him, it had spread. So um, there I was... um, no man, no husband. Uh, we had no kids. I had no pets uh, for various reasons. So the only thing anchoring me to the earth was the house that I was living in. And I had no job either. Um, I'd taken redundancy before he got ill. Okay. Um, so I was literally on my own, grieving 24-7 and going, Ugh! I don't know how to deal with this. It was so utterly overwhelming. Can I ask then, so what was your attitude towards death before your, your husband unfortunately got ill? Um, as, a sort of, you know, as, a, as a living adult? As a living adult in my 40s, I guess, I was kind of aware of it. My dad had passed away when I was in my 30s, mm-hmm. so that was my first human bereavement. I'd never known my grandparents. Okay. So, so yes, yeah, similar, very similar. I mean, all my grandparents, I think, had passed away before I got to 14 or 15 or that kind of era. Yeah, so I'd never lost a, uh, a human mm-hmm. before I lost my dad in my 30s. So I think that was both fortunate and unfortunate. You know, fortunate because I'd not experienced the pain and unfortunate because I'd no, had no tools to prepare me. And I, I had been dad's little girl. So I found it really difficult. I really desperately missed my dad. Mm-hmm. Dad was 76. Um, I still thought it was way too soon, but people kept saying, oh, well, you know, and he was 76. Well, yeah, but that's no age, really. Um, but then um, I kind of, you just get on with it because, you know, as a society, 
people say we don't talk about death. That's kind of not true. We do. We don't talk about dying and we don't talk about grief. Well, that's actually funny enough. I did, as part of this, um, we've also been looking at research into exactly what you're saying. Um, this is something I was going to uh, mention in the last in the last session, but there was a, a Comrades poll recently about the British public and their reluctance to talk, and it's exactly that, about planning for death. Mm-hmm. So it said only 36% of adults said they had written a will, and 83% said that they, they, they thought fellow British people were uncomfortable talking about death and dying. But again, it's the planning. Because it I, think, it, I think you're right. There is, like, I mean, people joke about it all the time, you know, the actual death part of it. But maybe when it's actually happening, that's when it's more difficult to talk to other people. And I think it's this whole, I don't know if this is a human, I'm not an analyst, I'm not a therapist, but I don't know if this is human thing of, you know, it's really sunny this morning. Uh, well, it certainly was where I live. It was raining here, but don't worry, carry on. It was really sunny, but I knew the forecast was for, for heavy rain and chance of storms. Mm-hmm. And you look out and you think, it's really hard to believe it's going to be a storm later because it's sunny. Yes. But we're English. We know fine well that there's rain not far away, even when it's sunny now, but we still act surprised when yeah. the rain comes along. And I think we just like that in everything, including the death and dying thing. Mm-hmm. We know it's coming. It's 100% inevitable. And I remember my financial advisor saying to me, and to Kevin, um, my late husband, before he got ill, you guys need to make a will. Yeah, yeah. You need to make wills. Yeah, 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 we'll get around to it. And I guess because we didn't have kids, um, it, it never felt kind of pressingly urgent. Well, you say that. I have got a son and I still haven't done a will. I know, I know it's utterly ridiculous, but funny enough, going back to that inevitability point, that's, I think, one thing that's very wrong with me is that I don't think it is inevitable, or I wish it, for how to put this without sounding absolutely not on this planet, I, obviously, you know, I'm aware of the fact that everyone dies, I mean, it would seem to be overwhelming evidence to support that, but for some reason my mind cannot accept that. Not that I think I won't die, it's just, maybe there's a chance you know, and I know that is ridiculous. I've been, you know, actually read something about this guy who plans to live to 180 by his diet and, like, you know, special sort of uh, circumstances living in much like Michael Jackson and his bubble. You know, and I know I would never, and I'm not going to do anything like that, and I'd probably live a bit too unhealthily, but for some reason, my mind cannot accept that it is inevitable. Do you know what it sounds like to me? Phil sounds like you're a human to me. <laughs> because I think this, it, it's just that, I really hate to use the word denial because well, I hate yeah, no, the word denial. Is, yeah. But it is this denying the rain coming. Yes. It's the same thing. For some people, denying death is coming. For you, it's denying that I will die almost. It's just a slightly different angle on the same thing. Yeah. That until we actually see it in front of us, it doesn't. it's not real. Hmm. And even when someone says to you, go home, Mr. Bachelor, and write your will, that's that's coming from the... The nurse, the melanoma nurse, yes. go home and write your will. You don't. I'll tell you what you do is you go home and you hit the internet and look for miracles. Yes. And I think that is the human condition. Yeah, the, yeah not accepting. Not accepting. And that's why people use expressions like battling cancer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, it won't beat me. And, yeah. You won't beat me. And yes, there's a lot to be said for the power of positive thinking. Mm-hmm. I hugely buy into having a positive attitude yeah. and certainly an attitude of gratitude. And gratitude is what got me through the dark early days of being widowed, was being grateful for what I did have, as well as mourning what I didn't. 
Would you say, uh, I mean, obviously you would have spoken about it some, I don't want to intrude too much on your on your personal life at all, but would you say you had a different attitude to that to your husband after the diagnosis? Or were you both thinking quite similarly that the whole battling it and we will be, beat it, that kind of thing? It's a really good question because actually we, we had very different kind of belief systems okay. in the sense that Kevin was an atheist. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, to use totally the wrong word. Yes, well, quite. Um, yeah, so he believed we're like light bulbs, that when you end, that's it, it's yeah. over. And that's fair enough. And I have a slightly different belief system where I don't have a religion, but I do believe in that, that something continues. Yes. That you can't destroy energy, that, that, that somehow we continue in a different form. Yeah. So, um, and I remember joking um, with some friends of mine who'd some, who suggested going to see a medium. And I said, well, you know, he won't come through because he'll prove himself wrong. Yes, of course. So there's no point even asking the question. We would have a little giggle about it and then we profusely. That was that. So um, I found it, I find some comfort in thinking that he's still around somewhere. Yeah. But for other people... The idea that the person they care about most in the world is somewhere else where they can't get to, that's torture. Right, okay. That's very interesting. So I very strongly believe in not imposing my view on anyone else because what's right for me could be really painful for someone else. I've never thought that's a very, very interesting point that that actually for some people that makes it worse because obviously as... You know, for me, you know, the, the notion that there is a, that, that somehow there's evidence is found that there is something who knows soul or whatever it's going to be called exists past your body expiring is tremendously comforting. I think, and I've said it before, that I think I could not happily die, but I've, I certainly don't think I would have this innate fear if I knew something was guaranteed to happen after, albeit, you know, a cloud of my you know entity somewhere floating but i've never thought that someone else would not want to think that simply because it's too painful for them to think that they can't reach their their, their, their loved ones and we all have a different view at different times and i remember someone saying to me with a really good intention and a really good heart saying carol of course you know there is no death and at that point i just wanted to break his jaw <laughs> And I and I looked at him and and I I called on my um, martial arts training to what? not hit him. Oh, th- thanks for bringing that up. Um, uh, that's been noted. <laughs> <laughs> to to not hit him, and I just looked him straight in the eye. I said, "There is separation," and to try and explain, I was in so much pain from being separated from the, from the love of my life that. Just the idea, people saying to me, try things like there's no death or, or, or the opposite, which is, uh, you know, don't worry, you know, you're young, you're fit. This was a few years ago. <laughs> um, you're young, you're fit, you'll remarry. That was just incredibly wounding because yeah. that's not what I wanted and it's certainly not what I needed to hear at the time, even though it might have been intellectually true. Intellectually true, could I remarry? Yes, I have. Thank you. I've found love a second time. I'm deeply grateful for that. But the point is, it wasn't helpful in that moment. And what is helpful for you might not be helpful for me and, and vice versa. So my job is dealing with the impact of when the physical relationship ends and other losses um, so that we can find a way forward. Yeah. You, you said um, that you, you both had different views of um, what might happen afterwards, if anything happens afterwards. Do you think that um, your, your late husband's view altered in any way um, as he, you know, suffered, unfortunately? Or do you think he was 
it gave him comfort. You know, I mean, it's it's a difficult one. You know, I think it gave him comfort that his pain was going to stop. Yes. And um, I think that the hardest moment of my entire life was the day that he said, "If I was a dog, you'd have shot me by now." And I had to say, "Yes, you're right. I would have." And he was tired of living. He told me he was tired of living because yeah. he knew he was only going to get worse. And that's a whole different debate. Well, of course, yeah, yeah, the quality of life. Debate, but having to hear that, and the truth is, that's lived in my memory for now coming up on 13 years. Yeah. Um, and I'll never forget that. I've got peaceful with it now, thanks to the tools that I've learned. Um, but he, he didn't suddenly... <laughs> turn to God um, you never know do you but you never know because let's face it you can get panicky and go well I'll yeah. hedge my bets just exactly. in case so you'll let me I mean, in when it, I get there it makes sense but um, no for him it only got too scary when he thought I couldn't cope yeah I've heard similar stories you know you worry more about the the people you're departing from than yourself and maybe that is the plan why we are biologically functioning like the way we are you know that that, that acceptance when you know you know a date or you know it's coming soon is probably more must be stronger because it it resonates so much with so many people saying they absolutely you know they were the calm one and it's the people around them that were flustering and and, you know and and going through the emotional turmoil exactly and for him his pain lasted in reality a few months um for me it went on much longer than that and and people would say to me oh at least he's out of pain now to be honest as soon as you start with sentence at least you're going nowhere good yes Um, But that might have been true for him. As far as we know, that was true for him. Um, It wasn't true for me. Mine was really just starting at that point. You started, obviously you said that uh, this uh, drove you to Amazon to look up this uh, book. So do you want to give us a bit of an idea about what you you do now and and how you found it? Yeah, sure. So the, the book I found was the Grief Recovery Handbook. And in it, it sets out something which they call the Grief Recovery Method. So it's a step by step action program that addresses the fact that most of our grief is unresolved hopes, dreams and expectations. It's about undelivered communications of an emotional nature. So as we started, all those questions, what if, if only, what if he'd gone to the doctors two days, two years earlier? Um, all of those things we can't do anything about. So it teaches you step by step how to complete that circle so that you can jump off the hamster wheel and move forward with the rest of your life. So I followed the instructions in the book. Yep. It is written as a self-help book. Um, but it talked about these people called grief recovery specialists, which yep. seemed to exist in the US, but clearly did not exist over here. So I did that for myself and I felt much better and I started to rebuild my life. And you know how these things kind of bump into you again? Mm-hmm. Well, a couple of years later, so 2008, I had cause to reread it. And that's when I read again grief recovery specialists. So then I hit good old Google and there are workshops you can learn how to do this so I contacted the Americans and said I'd really like to learn how to do this this needs to be in this country so long story short I did my training in 2009 and then Russell Friedman uh, executive director of the Grief Recovery Institute and John James's co-author of the book said to me Carol would you be kind enough to represent us and and bring this to the UK? And you have an extra layer of work to do because you've got to unstiffen all those lips before you can do anything else with the people over there. So I said, yes. So they trained me to be a trainer. And since then, I've trained over 400 people to be grief recovery specialists. And we've helped many thousands of people heal their hearts. 
how would people come to you? I mean, how, I mean, obviously, I luckily touch woods. You know, on my personal life, I've I've not had to grieve heavily. You know, I've lost people, but certainly no one as close as that. So, you know, if I was in that situation, how would I how would I find you? Um, website. Of Good course, <laughs> that wasn't meant to be. <laughs> Good old Google. Buts, yes. So yeah, griefrecoverymethod.co.uk, and we sell the book and we offer workshops. So either I can put people in touch with their nearest grief recovery specialist or they can come to a workshop Mm -hmm. um, or they can train to be a grief recovery specialist but the the point is this is about equipping people to help themselves yes this is not me saying phil i can fix you this is me saying phil here's a set of tools i'm going to teach you them and then you can use them again and again again for the rest of your life so in my terminology the experience that you had when you were about 14 yes was a loss of hopes dreams and expectations of the future as you saw it there's a loss right there. And it's quite possible that using the grief recovery tools, even for such an intangible loss as hopes, dreams and expectations, could reset how you feel about that. I have no idea. But it'd be an interesting to try. That does sound right. I mean, I've, um, you've lucky you've given me the book, so that's definitely something I, I can do and will do. Um, and actually, on that note, do you think it's more universal than that? It can help? A lot of people with a lot of problems or just through life. Absolutely. So we define grief as the conflicting feelings following a change or end in a familiar pattern of behavior. So there's no death in there. So um, when someone says, it's not you, it's me, I'm ending this relationship, your relationship dies. There may be conflicting feelings around that. There may be relief that the arguing's over, but real deep sadness and disappointment that there is now going to be no reconciliation and there's not going to be driving around Australia in a camper van in retirement which you'd always plan to do mm-hmm. so we grieve all loss we grieve when we lose our job yeah and we might go oh yeah and get another one get a better one but we lost that one you should be around here because people lose their jobs all the time <sighs> there's probably a lot of grieving going on <laughs> and, and it's a good thing we're editing right? <laughs> <laughs> are we? And uh, do you know what it it's a real loss and, and it's fascinating isn't it that people will radically accept someone saying I love my job I love my husband I love my kids I love my pet and no one says that's not the same we readily accept that there are different sorts of love there's romantic love and the love we have for our friends and the love we have for our work or our job but as soon as we say I'm grieving the loss of my job if you were to say that you go well that's weird and that can't possibly be the same as the grief I've had yes, of, course of course it can't because no two griefs are the same, because no two relationships are the same. But as there are many a types of love, there are as many types of grief. Well, that's actually, yeah, that was going to be my next next sort of way of questioning. It sounds like an interview, doesn't it? Um, but when you say how many different types of grief, you know, could you sort of summarise, like, are they like, or is it that many individual there are types? That it's thousands of losses that can invoke grief. Yeah, I, I mean, in, sorry, in terms of if, of losing someone, someone passing away specifically rather than just across the board. Uh, yeah, all grief is unique. Right. So um, all relationships are unique. Now there will be parallels. There will be commonalities. So I've, I have met with hundreds and hundreds of widows, right. for example. And I can tell you that I can identify with many of the things that they are feeling and experiencing. However, I've yet to meet a widow that felt the exact same way yep. that I did because they weren't married to Kevin. Yes. And they ain't me. You know, so, um, you know, you could be widowed from someone who was abusive. And then let's talk about conflicting feelings. Of course. Uh, you could be, as I was, in a really long, happy, loving relationship 
There's still conflicting feelings. Relief that he wasn't that dog waiting to be shot anymore. Um, along with deep despair that he wasn't there anymore. You know, I didn't just lose my husband. I lost my best friend and my IT support all <laughs> in one go, <laughs> you know. And the first time I had to buy a computer without him being there just felt wrong and weird on so many levels. Um, which, of course, was a completely different experience to when my dad died. Now, if you'd talked to me just after my dad died, I'd have told you I was devastated and I couldn't feel any worse. Yeah. When my husband died, I'd have said losing my dad was like a graze on the knee compared to how I felt. But I got to judge that. If anybody externally said to me, well, this is worse, I'd have told them where to get off. Because we can only decide for ourselves which had a greater intensity. Because the truth is, we grieve all loss at 100% intensity. You can't half grieve. Can you be half pregnant? No. Yeah. You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. There may be a grey area in the middle where you think you might, but you're not actually sure, kind of a bit, um, what's the word, Schrodinger's cat. Yeah. Until the little stick goes blue, you're either not or you aren't. But the truth is, you're, you're either grieving or you're not. So you can grieve at a lower intensity or a massive intensity. When I lost my husband, it was the intensity which made me seriously contemplate whether I wanted to join him. And it was an intensity where I had physical pain. It felt like every strand of DNA in my body had been ripped apart at the seams. That's how huge that intensity was. I had no idea how I was going to carry on for the next five minutes, let alone the next five years. So your attitude towards existence in general, mm -hmm. um, has it changed over the years? I mean, obviously, you've you pinpointed yes. these two big moments in your yeah. life, your, your, your father and your husband passing away. Um, did you, you know, you said you have a belief that something must happen, but did that ever go away? Um, no. Um, what did happen was when my mother passed away, I was much more peaceful with it. Right. Um, I think what has happened, and I think when, and when I read your article, there was something there which I kind of re related to, which is an awareness that the life we have now is short. Yes. And the humanists would say it's the life we can the only life we can be sure of um kevin had a humanist funeral <laughs> um that's before there were civil funerals so um we had a humanist funeral so said so they said this is the only life we can be sure of yes and i kind of could buy into that in the sense that because this is the only one we're sure of we need to make the most of it so in the early days i would say i was much more awareness of my own mortality yeah so I became more reckless. I think that's the, exactly the way it goes, isn't it? As soon as, and this has mirrored my life, you know, as soon as I've started thinking, it, it's almost like, well, nothing, everything pales into insignificance compared to it. Before I had my son and before I fell in love, you know, but before that, it was like, well, what's the worst that can happen? You know, I've already thinking about it every day. Before you had a future, in other words, and I saw no future, so I got really reckless. Now, for me, existence is Kevin still exists yeah. because he's in my heart. Mm -hmm. He still exists in his sister's heart, in his mother's heart, in everyone who knew him and loved him. He will exist as long as there's someone around to carry him in their hearts, regardless of the afterlife, if there is one. Yeah. So um, my, uh, I always feel like his legacy to me is that I carry him in my heart and it is my job because he was a flipping good guy and it's wrong that there isn't something left to me on earth because we had no kids 
is to use what happened to me to help other people understand that life is for living and I don't want you going through your life distraught, miserable and heartbroken. I want you to, yeah, it's a life you didn't choose, but now you've got this life, live it, don't exist in it. Yeah. And if I can get people from existing to living, then my life is completely worthwhile. That sounds, yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the silly thing about my situation is that, you know, for 23 hours, let's say 23 and a half hours on a daily basis, barring the sleep part of it, I, you know, it's not something that comes to mind, but every day, pretty much every day, uh, it either be like, um, like today I thought it's, um, it's already August, so we're over halfway through the year, therefore I'm closer to the end of the year, which means closer to another year starting, which in turn means closer to not existing, which is, you know, and that, that, that bothers me. I'm, I'm, ha I'm genuinely happier if it's April than if it's, say, September, just because it's, it's totally irrational because obviously you could die at any point, but for me, I think that's the way my mind tries to control it. It controls time in a way so it doesn't pass away too quickly by constantly thinking about it. And I will say that so many people like complain about life going really quickly. That's something that maybe I'm in denial, again, a word we don't like to use, but it doesn't seem to be for me. It just seems to go very slowly because I'm constantly thinking of it. So in a way, because it's reoccurring theme, it's like it's stagnant, nothing ever changes. So, you know, time seems to pass pretty slowly for me. Happiness exists only in the present moment. And unhappiness comes from being in a place any other than the present moment. And when your mind and your body are in the same place at the same time, that's where peace is, that's where joy resides. So when you're in the moment, you can be completely happy because you can only worry about ceasing to exist if you're time traveling into the future. Yes. You can only be unhappy if you're going into the past to think about things that have already happened. So in the moment right now where you and I are having quite an interesting conversation, <laughs> I'm quite peaceful yeah. because I'm in the here and now enjoying listening to you and saying, okay, and, you know, where is this going to go next? That's perfectly peaceful. But if, as soon as we start going time traveling, we time travel all the time. People say time travel is not possible. We do it all the time. Traveling into the future, or what most often happens, go into the past, finding us finding something to beat ourselves up about and projecting into the future to worry about it. Yeah. So worrying is taking away the time that we have right now. Well, when I was seeing, uh, believe it or not, an existential counsellor, they do exist. It's pretty remarkable. So solely there to talk about the nature of the human condition and existence. Um, one thing that, that, that she, she maintained, um, like you say, you know, you can only live in the here and now. And to waste your time, you know, thinking about it is, is just, you know, it's almost like if you had an opportunity to, to do this, let's say we could, you know, um, chat 24 hours every day, you never get the time to think about or to worry about because we're social animals was her argument. And we were, we're born into finding relationships, whether it be people you love or like or even hate. So if you consume yourself with that, being alive then you won't worry so much. And I think that's true. And it's certainly something I've tried to do more and more. Not that I was ever quiet, as you can imagine, but I've certainly put more, invested more time into just speaking to people, you know, like, you know, can be random people because at those moments you're not worried, you feel alive, as you say. And it's only really when I'm on my own 
even if someone else is there, but when I'm containing in my head that those thoughts happen. So if there was some way, if I could like maybe appear in a a talking marathon or something, or be involved <laughs> in like a, you know a week long conversation, then I probably wouldn't think about it for that week. And um, so, in in my terminology, talking for you is what we would call an energy relieving behaviour. Mm-hmm. It's what takes you away from that particular reality so energy relieving behaviors and we call them short-term energy relieving behaviors because this is things that you're engaging in order to avoid a feeling so for you it's talking which is kind of relatively harmless um, well you don't know what i'm going to say but yes, yes you're right, probably harmless relatively harmless maybe compared to you know drinking or drug taking oh or, no that's or oh, gambling no, no, we, we won't or, go into that. yeah or, or all of those mm. but again energy relieving behavior is a symptom of loss and i to me what it sounds like you've experienced is is a loss of peace of mind do you find yourself drawn to death, given what you do? As you say, like the stories made me interested. Like you know, like maybe if you're on Twitter or, or something, you know, you're more likely to watch a true crime series. Or no, the opposite. I t- oh, that's the day job. Um, <laughs> I, you know, everyone keeps telling me I should watch the Ricky um, Afterlife. Gervais yes. Afterlife because it's brilliant. Mm. And um, I say, do you know, <laughs> I don't want to because it's my day job. And um, so there's a bit of that. But not because I don't want to listen to people grieving, um, because I do. But at the same time, I want to do that for X percent of my life. And then the rest of my life, I want to forget that and just be Carol. So let's talk a bit uh, more about your your work. Um, Do people contact you when they know uh, they're going to die? Or is it like the family members left behind? Most commonly, it would be the people left behind. But sometimes we do get contacted by people who are ill, usually worried about their relatives. They want to fix everything and set it all up. Um, But sometimes it's for themselves and they are grieving. They are grieving their losses of hopes, dreams and expectations that they would live longer than they are going to. So in those circumstances, say if it is someone maybe who lives on their own who, you know, as you say, knows um, they're going to die, how... How would you go about preparing them? I mean, I know it's obviously not going to be a a one-size-fits-all, but... Well, we keep it within the scope of grief recovery. So our role as grief recovery specialists is to help them resolve all the undelivered communications of an emotional nature. Now, in some cases, that will be encouraging them to make those communications directly to the people concerned. In other cases where that's not possible or not appropriate... We have them deliver those communications to us as the grief recovery specialist and we have a set of tools to do that in a structured and productive way. So given how, depending on how much time they have, of course, so if they have enough time, we will take them through the entire grief recovery tools. Yep. And if they don't have enough time, really it becomes about being what we call being a heart with ears. It's listening them, hearing what they have to say, because I guarantee you people will be shutting them down all day long. Oh, don't say that. Right. Oh, you've got to keep positive and, and closing them down when actually they have really haven't got much time and they just need to be heard. And also give them permission to let go. Yeah. Because, you know, everyone in their family is so full of the positive thinking. At some point, the positive thinking has to end and the reality has to set in. But very rarely does the person who is ill get permission to say, it's okay, you can leave now. So, obviously, people die in numerous ways. Do Mm -hmm. you find um, 
with the, the people that left behind. Do you, do you find like a difference between, say, someone who has died after an illness um, compared to, say, someone who's committed suicide or, or, or that kind of or that kind of nature? There is a difference between a sudden death and a long-term yes. illness in how people respond. Often, get people get focused on cause of death. And very gently and very lovingly, we steer them towards, would you miss them anymore if they died of something else? Yes. Okay. Because the, the reality is they've died. So if they died of something different, the questions would be different. So when someone's taken their own life, why is a big question. Yes. The answer, yeah, again, the, yeah. the unanswered question. The unanswered question. Why? Why now? Why then? Why not? Why didn't he ask me? Why didn't... When someone's had a long-term illness, the questions might be, why didn't the doctor see this sooner? Mm-hmm. So it's the same why didn't, questions, it's the, but... It's the same, different yeah. emphasis. So we're still left with, but I miss him and my heart is broken. Okay, um, I've actually asked this of, of everyone so far, so don't think this is a strange question, although it probably is. Um, have you thought about your death? Yes. Is it something you think about often? No. Um, I think about it from time to time and I just hope for a death that's peaceful and at home mm-hmm. kind of like my mum went you know my mum um, was at home in her own bed surrounded by people who loved her and I can't think of a better death so I'd hope for something like that um, and funny enough Ian um, my husband now um, argue over who's better off going first and I say I need to go first because I've been widowed once I don't need to do it again thank you very much okay, yeah. and he said no you need <laughs> I need to go first because you've had practice at doing this you'll be better at it very cool I'm uncritical <laughs> I mean you know Kath can go first it's fine sorry Kath if you're listening to this but you know I just have to be selfish about this one I, I'm going to stick around as long as physically possible <laughs> really we want to go together <laughs> <laughs>